What up, Oasis fam? All right, let's go. Now, I don't have time to take this tangent, but I'm going to anyways, and I'll pay for it later. But Nathan, who just talked, there was a summer before he was here where we were in between children's pastors. And I know I do okay giving a message or hanging out with college students and young adults, but they asked me to help fill in at Kids Point for a little bit. And I kid you not, it was probably the scariest Sunday morning of my life. Like it was complete anarchy over there. I had no authority whatsoever. All of the adults were looking at me like, are you serious? You're in charge? It was terrible. And I tell you that to say, Nathan is incredible. He's one of my dear friends and he always can use volunteers. So seriously, if you're interested, it is fun. And if you like kids, it's even more fun. I just don't really like kids. So next, I won't tell you my opinion on dogs. Anyways. We're starting tonight in our second week of XOXO, and last week we did dating, and if you were in the room, you probably heard it fine. If you were trying to join us online, like you maybe are tonight, we did have some tech difficulties, but the sermon is always up live on YouTube, where you can watch it there. But tonight we're diving into friendship, and as I was reflecting on friendship this last week, I don't think I have laughed harder while sermon prepping. Like, they could probably hear me cackling through the walls as I was taking notes on different stories that I was hoping to tell tonight. And as I have story after story that I wanted to tell, really I settled on this one. Has anybody ever played the game Silent Football? No? Okay, well, this maybe won't hit. We'll see. You can Google it later, but it's a made-up game that you kind of make up the rules for. And the way you win the game is simply obey all the rules. And you're like, ah, that feels really easy. But the problem is they are always changing rules. Things are getting added, things are getting removed, things are getting tweaked and morphed, and it is a more complicated game. And the whole time you're passing around an invisible ball and you go like, boop, and that's how you send it. So if you ever wanna play there, you can now get the instructions. But the way the game finishes is if you mess up a rule, you get a strike. If you get three strikes, you lose. And there's always like the shame and sadness of losing. I'm a highly competitive person. Like I don't like losing at anything. And so I I already don't like losing, but my friend group, we never just let it be the natural shame of losing. Instead, we always had to up the ante. So we would always have a punishment for the loser. And I tell you what, it was late November and we had a guy at a bachelor party swimming in a frozen lake. It was uh, January, uh, middle of January, and we had one of my roommates outside in his underwear rolling around on the snow. Uh, It was like March and we had someone running to a gas station over a mile away that they had to sing happy birthday the whole time. Like stupid, crazy stuff. But that one I will tell you about is this guy lost and the punishment for him was he had to drink a glass of ketchup water. Yeah. Like you know when you you don't shake the ketchup bottle enough and it like gets the bun all soggy and you're like, oh, I'm throwing this hot dog away. Like that. But imagine like a whole glass of that. So we, we essentially took a glass of water, we skirted some ketchup in there, we stirred it up. He almost vomited watching us stir the ketchup water, and he left the room, and that was his mistake. He no longer was supervising the glass of ketchup water, and so when he was gone, we pulled out of the fridge something we'd been storing for the last couple of months, which was ghost pepper hot sauce. If you don't know anything about ghost peppers, it's one of the hottest peppers in the world. And we had had it because we had a wing challenge a couple months back. And he left the room, he's gagging. You can hear him like dry heaving in the other room. And we are shaking the ghost pepper hot sauce into his glass of ketchup water. And we stir it up all good. He comes back and you know, there's always that weird, awkward feeling when you're missing something in the room. He did not pick up on it. And he came and he, he got all the gusto and all the, he was ready to go. And he took a huge swig of this ketchup water. And I kid you not, his eyes 
went massive and he sprinted to the bathroom and he was just like about to hurl over and over and we were crying and as I was remembering this story, I could just remember the look on his face. I can remember the people that were around. I can remember whose idea it was. Loki, I think it was mine. But like, <laughs> I remember all of that. And I just was like overjoyed at friendship. But then at the same time, as I was preparing this sermon, I almost felt like that was too shallow a story to start the night with. Because we all have those moments where we're at the mountaintop and things are great and it's sunshine and smiles and we're enjoying our time with our friends. And those moments are nice. But when we talk about friendship, there's this depth to it. That when we're in the valley, in the hardship, in the struggle, in the storm, it's in those moments where it's, friends are really necessary. The point I have for you to start is when things are great, it's nice to have friends. But when things are tough, you need friends. When things are going great and everything is happy and, and, and sunshine, and it's nice to have people around. God has created us for community and we need that, but really it's a luxury in those moments. But when you're struggling through something, when life has dealt you a hard blow, that's when you need people who will lock arms with you. And so as much as all the... Here, can I get a... Nathan, can I get that mic from you? Sorry, we were... Uh, messing with my mic this week and I don't think we got it fixed right but I'll just preach from this one and as I was reflecting this week of all can you turn me down a little bit too thank you as I was reflecting I'm picky now that's too low all right we'll figure it out as we go but uh as I was reflecting this week I found myself more than all the laughs remembering the people who loved me remembering the people who locked arms with me in the struggle and in the hardship Remembering the people who formed me and shaped me in life. I was trying to reflect on just all of the people, and I ended up writing just a couple of handwritten letters and mailing them this week to friends who have deeply impacted my life. And I don't want to get too sappy too quick, but to be honest, I'm going to. Because one of those friends for me is Ben. And if you don't know who I'm talking about, he'll be with us next week. He's going to preach. But Ben is the former Oasis pastor, and he is amazing. Like, he is so wise, and he is, is loving and kind and generous, and he is funny, but not nearly as funny as he thinks he is. And, like, four years ago, he got hired as my boss, and now he's one of my best friends. Like, isn't that crazy? Isn't that so wild and weird, but isn't that also friendship? That a guy, I, I didn't even know his name four years ago, is now someone I can't imagine living life without. A guy who... When I lost one of my closest friends, he was there. A guy who, when ministry was really, really tough, he was there. A guy who, when marriage was confusing and is confusing and is hard, he's there. More often than not, it cost, cost me a hug that I don't really want to give, but he, he is there. And I don't tell you all these things about Ben so that you can go be friends with him, though I think you should. He would love that, mega extrovert. I tell you these things because chances are you've had a friend like that. A friend who has deeply impacted your life. A friend who your story can't be told without stating the impact they've had on you. And when we think about these friends, I think it really sums up what friendship is and what it's supposed to be. But if you had those friends, you also know this. <laughs> it ain't always easy, right? The people you love will also drive you crazy. 
that's like a marriage sermon all summed up, but it applies to friendship too. Like the people you care so deeply about will also drive you absolutely bonkers. Like Ben, he has this emotional, confrontational personality that 88% of the time is amazing. You know, he will get in any empathy with you. He will walk alongside you. He will cry with you. No problem. He will whip out the tears. Like, and he has this confrontational side of him where he, you never know, have to worry where you stand with him. But at the same time, that 12%, oh my gosh, I want to kill him when he's crying and yelling and all of the things. And, and I got to work with him and I got to love him. And I got to love his kids. And, and like, there's those moments and he could say the same stuff about me and my insecurities or my stubbornness or whatever it is. Like, but that's what friendship is, right? That as you picture your best friend right now, you could whip out 14 things that you'd probably change about them, yet they're still your best friend. And all of that takes us to this reality that friendships take work. There is bound to be hardships, bumps in the road, and struggle along the way. You're a person, a person with flaws. They're a person and a person with flaws, and so there's going to be tension and struggle. You're going to do things, and they're going to do things that upset each other and drive strife in the relationship And it won't always be smooth sailing. And so friendships take work, but from start to finish, when we invest in our friends, hopefully they invest back in us. And that's where true life is found. Tonight, we're going to look at three different examples in the Bible of friendship. And they say one of the best ways to learn is through experience. And so I think all of you pretty much out there are doing this right now. You're in friendships. You're in the struggle. You're figuring it out. You're loving people. But yet they say the second best way to learn is through other people's experiences. And that's one of the reasons the Bible is incredible. That the three examples we'll look at tonight, each one of them has lasted through history as a beautiful model of how do we love our friends. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Daniel 3. And as you do that, I'm going to pray. Father, thank you tonight for the chance to step into your word. I pray that your spirit would lead us and guide us and direct us into all truth, that we would walk away from here loving our friends better. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. The first group of friends that we'll look at tonight is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Super famous group of guys. Typical Bible story. And I have to give you a little fun fact about them. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are the hottest guys in the Bible. Some of you didn't get the joke. You'll catch it later. But really, their story is found throughout the book of Daniel. And where we're going to focus is Daniel 3. But before we get there, i got to summarize a little bit for you. Because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego used to live in the nation of Judah. But Judah has been conquered by Babylon. And so they now find themselves living as exiles among the Babylonians. And all the while they're doing this, this king, King Nebuchadnezzar, is reigning. And he has, let's just say, questionable character. Like, for example, in the story we're looking at tonight, He has built a statue of himself made of gold. It is a hundred feet tall. And every single time music plays, people have to bow down and worship it. Like, talk about narcissism, right? Like, think Statue of Liberty, but the Babylon edition. And instead of thinking freedom and liberty, think oppression. Like, this is the example of of his character that's given to us in the text tonight. Yet Shadrach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they have faith in God. And God has told them in Exodus 20 that they should worship no other gods besides God. He says even more specifically, they shouldn't bow down and worship any idol that isn't God himself. So the king, 
He's demanding that anytime music plays, whether it's a, a, a flute or a drum or, or a horn, it doesn't matter. Anytime music plays, everybody in the nation is supposed to bow down and worship this statue. Yet here's God telling them that they should worship no other God except him. And you can feel some of the strife in that, right? You can feel some of the conflict that when the music inevitably starts to play, they have a decision to make. These three guys, they're just living their lives and guess what? The music starts to play. It starts to get loud and it doesn't matter where you're at and what you're doing. Every single person in the whole nation has started to worship this idol. Like thousands of people have all of a sudden gotten down on their knees and are bowing down, worshiping this idol. And everyone in the whole nation is worshiping except these three guys. We sometimes can uh, clean up stories in the Bible and make them, we pacify them. But do you feel the awkwardness of that? <laughs> Imagine every single person in this room at SDSU's campus, the whole community of Brookings, they all in a single moment hit the floor as they worship this idol. And three guys are awkwardly standing left there. The whole nation would look at them like, hey, did you hear it? Right? Pulling their pant leg like, you're supposed to bow. The awkwardness of that. The tension that when everyone else was willing to do what the king said, these three would serve God. Things are interesting in our situation. There's a personal struggle going on. Are they going to worship? Are they not? What's going to happen? King Nebuchadnezzar actually had predicted a situation like this might, might occur. And he had told the nation that if anybody wouldn't worship the idol, they would burn in the fire. Some of you might get the joke now. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what they did, it ticked off the king. I mean, he is livid. The words used are rage and furious in the text. He is so mad that he will throw these guys in the fire. But it's not any ordinary fire set for these three. He's so mad, he turns the fire up seven times hotter than it's ever been. So hot that when the soldiers come to throw in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they actually die just from heat exposure. That bystanders are dying just because of how hot this fire is. They get thrown in, they're tied up. And when the king peeks his head in to see what he hopes will be three men burning, he actually sees four men walking. Unharmed by the fire, untied from the ropes, just hanging out in the world's hottest fire. The king actually, in his own words, describes the fourth man he sees in there as someone who looks like a son of the gods. I don't know about you, but I only know one son of God. His name is Jesus, and he was with those guys in the fire. And I tell you this story, one, because it's dope, right? Like, three guys get thrown into the fire. All of a sudden, it's like, wow, there's a fourth guy. Jesus is with them in the fire. But I also tell you that because it models for us biblical friendship, what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do here is they model that loving friends commit to God. Loving friends, they commit to God. Last week, I emphasized how as Christians, we should only date other Christians. And I gave a lot of reasons for that, and you can go back and listen. But that theme, it actually kind of translates into a little bit of what we're talking about tonight. Not in the sense that as Christians, you can't have non-Christian friends but that as Christians, your core friends should be other Christians. That your closest core friends 
should have the same faith as you. The people who you interact with the most, the people that have the heaviest influence on you, the people that you go to in, the, in, in, the, in life's hardest moments, those people should have the same faith in Jesus as you do. The same uh, idea applies that we were talking about there, the same logic from last week, because as Christians, Jesus is our everything. We live our whole lives in pursuit of Jesus. We want to look like him, love like him, be like Jesus. And when life gets hard, and when things happen, we need people who will point us to Jesus. Your non-Christian friend, they may be great, they may be awesome, they might be funny, but if they don't have faith in Jesus, they can't point you towards the Savior. I honestly think this is one of the biggest hang-ups people have when they become Christians. It's one of the biggest stunters of spiritual growth, is the community they now find themselves a part of. It's part of my story. I gave my life to Jesus late in high school, late in the junior year, beginning of senior year, and I was in this group of friends that we had been best friends from since like sixth grade. I loved these guys. They loved me. They were great guys, super fun, but none of us followed Jesus. Like half of us would have said we were Christians, but we weren't Christians. We lived life completely on our own set of morals and our own set of agenda, but eventually God, in his kindness, called me to him, and I, and I gave my life to him, and I found myself to be a Christian. But I found myself still in that group of friends. And as I was trying to now pursue this new identity, this new purpose, these new values, I had the same group of friends who, they didn't know any better. And so they were calling me to something different. And time after time again, as God was calling me to rid myself of this sin or to do this new thing, I found myself stumbling back into the same routines with the same people. Again, it's not that we have to cut all non-Christians out of our lives. That's not what I'm saying. Those guys are still in my life. I still, they're blowing up my phone right now about the Chiefs game. I tell you what, they're still in my life, but the role they play is different. God had to plant me in a new group of people, a group of people who shared my faith, that when things got tough and the struggle was on and I was trying to rid myself of sin or to pursue righteousness, they would link arms with me and we would run towards the throne together. Loving friends commit to God. When we look back at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we see three guys who are in a tough situation. Their life is literally on the line if they don't follow the king's orders. And it's in those moments they needed each other's help to commit to God. John 16, Jesus tells us that our life will also have struggles. And it's in those moments when life gets tough, we need people who will direct us to God. It's easy to follow Jesus when it's easy. When things are great, it's really easy to show up to Oasis. It's easy to read your Bible. It's easy to, to pray. But when things are not going great, we need people who will help pick us off the mat and lead us towards the Father. When you experience loss and someone you love passes away, and you're in the midst of grief wondering why that person is now gone. You need someone who will tell you about the hope of Jesus. When you find heartbreak and you had this future planned and you had it painted in your head and you knew what, exactly what this would entail and that person was so close to you, they knew so much about you and now they're no longer there. You need someone who will point you back to Jesus and let you know that your identity was never in that relationship but always in the Father's love. 
when failure comes and it's bound to come and you get fired from a job or you fail the project or you, you flunk the test, whatever it is, when those moments come, you need someone that tells you that you are still enough because God has said you are enough. That's the reason we need Christian friends by our side. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the midst of the fire, were willing to commit to each other and commit to faith. The second group of friends I'll tell you about is Job, Eliphaz, Bilidad, and Zophar. Now those three names can get kind of confusing, and they typically are actually just referred to as Job's friends. So that's how I'll refer to them for the rest of tonight. And so we're looking here at Job and Job's friends. And this last week, I was preparing this message, and typically I'll run it past like a couple pastors or like ask a, uh, another person for their opinion. And someone was like, hey, what are, you, what are you preaching about for a friendship? And I said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they were like, yes, like great, in the fire. They got Jesus. It was awesome. And then they were like, what's the next one? And I was like, Job's friends. And they were like, skirt? Like, what? Like, what? You're using Job's friends? And they were so confused, because if you read the book of Job, Job's friends suck. <laughs> Like, they are terrible friends. But when you read just Job 2, and you find at the beginning of Job's story what his friends were able to offer them, they were brilliant friends. So check this out from Job 2. What's already happened is that God has allowed Satan to do some things in Job's life. Job worshipped the Lord. He was righteous. He lived in a way that was glorifying to God and everything that he did And Satan, he hated that. Satan, we know, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And so he didn't want anything that Job was experiencing as blessing. He didn't want Job to have that anymore. And so he took it away. He killed his animals. He killed his servants. He killed his children. Job is left literally crushed. Emotionally in tatters. Completely fallen apart. Everything he'd ever had, every blessing he'd ever had, it was all gone in a moment. When Job was at his lowest point, his friends were there. And that's the first thing we need to learn from them. Job's friends, they showed up. Verse 11, when Job's friends, Eliphaz the Terminite, Bilidad the Shehite, and Zephar the Namanite, heard about the troubles that they had come upon, They set out from their homes and they met together by agreement to go and to sympathize with him and comfort him. Right here, Job's friends are modeling for us that loving friends show up. Loving friends show up. I pray nobody has Job's experience. He lost everything. It was crushing for him. Complete desolation of his family, his future, his stuff. It's all gone. Yet at the same time, I find myself praying that each and every one of us have friends that show up. That when you have a bad health diagnosis, you have a friend who will show up. When you have that struggle and that conflict with a family member, that you would have friends who show up. When you find yourself struggling with anxiety and depression and and, and emotional issues and relational issues and, and all the things this life will throw at you, I pray that you have friends who show up. Job's friends, they they showed up. And to be honest with you, many times I've struggled to show up for my friends. As your pastor, I'm, I'm being honest. That I can struggle to show up 
for my friends who are in need, who have hit rock bottom. And the reason I find it so tough is I have this fear in the back of my mind that says, when I get there, what am I going to offer? When they've been dealt a crushing blow by life and I'm the one who's supposed to step up and offer something, I have this insecurity in me that says I'm not good enough and I don't have anything and I, and I can't offer them anything. And if you feel those same things, I want you to look at what Job's friends do in the next couple of verses. Verse 11 and 12, they set out from their homes and they met together by agreement to go and to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep and they tore their robes and they sprinkled dust on their heads. These are cultural signs of mourning that they saw Job do this and so they joined in with him. And in all the things that his friends are doing, Job's friends empathize with him. Job's friends, they they model for us that loving friends connect emotionally. Yes, they showed up physically. They were in the same space as Job. They traveled there. They left their homes. They sacrificed. But not only were they there physically, but they were emotionally available to Job. From a long ways off, they recognized that Job is literally unrecognizable because he is suffering such grief and anguish. He's laying in the field covered in dust, clothes ripped, weeping, and in a moment where I would maybe cower away, Job's friends, they wade into the grief and the sorrow. Job was crying, they cried. Job was mourning, they mourned. Over and over and over again, they stepped into the messiness of relationship and offered empathy. Jesus modeled the same thing for us in John 11. He's showing up to the tomb where his friend Lazarus had, had died just four days earlier. And when he shows up to this tomb, he does something that I never would. Verse 33, it says, When he saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Jesus said, Where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But others of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Two groups of people here divided by their interpretation of what Jesus has just done. Some of them got it, some of them didn't. The ones who didn't were frustrated by Jesus' actions. They said, we've seen you do miracles in the past. Why didn't you show up for your friend Lazarus and do the miracle here? But others of his friends, they recognized John 11.35. One of the shortest verses in the Bible. Two words, Jesus wept. If you've never done scripture memory before here, we'll practice together. John 11.35, Jesus wept. Now you got one in your pocket for later. One of the shortest verses in the Bible, but one that is unbelievably profound. Because in verse 44, Lazarus will actually rise from the grave. He will come back from the dead. He will be resurrected by Jesus. Yet Jesus was weeping moments ago. The Savior who had the, the power to raise his friend from the grave, he had their solution, yet he finds himself weeping with those who weep. He knows what's about to happen. He knows he has victory. He knows he has healing. He knows he has what they need and what they want. 
yet he weeps with them. Jesus wept and there was power in his emotional connection. He saw the suffering of the people and regardless of if he had the healing or not, he stepped into the emotional empathy. The last group of people we're going to look at is Paul, Barnabas, and Mark. I made this joke this week and they didn't think it was funny so you probably wouldn't either, but I labeled these guys PB and M. Oh, come on. <laughs> Paul, Paul, Barnabas, and Mark. Paul, PB and M. Anyways, we'll get on with it. At least we've lightened the mood. And you find most of their story in Acts 15. I'll read you verse 36. It says, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preached and the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, but Paul didn't want to take him because he thought it was unwise. Because Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued the work. Verse 39 and 40, it says, Paul and Barnabas had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas, he took Mark and he sailed for Cyprus. Paul, he chose Silas and he left. To summarize what I just told you is that there are these two best friends, Paul and Barnabas. They have been on the mission of God together. They have traveled to different continents. They got all kinds of insta pics and stories to tell. It's, it's been great. But at one part, Mark was one of the bros. He was going along on the trip. He was with them in the struggle. He was on the gospel mission. But somewhere in the middle, he flaked. He deserted them. He left. He completely abandoned the mission of God and now Barnabas wants to let him back in. <laughs> Paul's like, ain't no way that brother getting another chance. Like, he hurt me. He abandoned me. He left me. And so a, a powerhouse pairing of the New Testament, Paul and Barnabas, splits ways and standing at the middle of that conflict is Mark. Second Timothy chapter 4 Paul writes another letter. And when he writes this letter, he's doing it on his proverbial deathbed. That this is believed to be the last letter in the Bible that Paul wrote before he died. In Paul's death, it wasn't like a surprise. He knew it was coming. He knew that his, his, the end was upon him. And so he's writing this letter. And in some of his last requests, this is what he says. Verse 9. Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has left, has left to Galatia, Titus to Dametia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in ministry. I sent Tysias to Ephesus, and on and on and on. Paul is giving this list, making his final requests. And did you catch it? Did you see it on the screen? Did you hear it? Who's he asked for? Mark. Wait, hold up, hold up. Mark who deserted him? Mark who left him? Mark who abandoned him? Mark who gave up on the gospel? Mark who was at the, the core of his disagreement with his best friend? Mark who cost Paul so much? Yet on his deathbed, he says, go get Mark. I need him. I want him here with me. Scholars have, have studied this story and have looked at it to try to examine what has happened here. But ultimately, the simplest answer is Paul forgave Mark. I'll invite the team up. That's somewhere between Acts 15 and 2 Timothy 4. Paul and Mark have reconciled their relationships. 
that the guy who was once a deserter is now being called to the bedside of one of the most incredible people in the New Testament, Paul, that Mark, this guy who had deeply wounded Paul, who had abandoned him and had all the reason in the world for Paul to to be bitter at him to the end, something has happened in his life that has transformed him and invited Mark back into relationship. Ultimately, I hope we take two application steps from this last part. Some of us in the room, we need to leave tonight and you need to call that friend and you need to apologize. I don't know if it was yesterday, six months ago, a year ago, or four years ago, but chances are you've done something and you've hurt someone. And someone who used to feel like a best friend now feels more like an enemy. And in the midst of that struggle and, and, that, and that fight, there's pride in us that says, no, I won't send the text. I won't send the phone call. I won't show up. I won't write the letter. I won't put myself out there because what if? What if they reject me? What if they don't accept it? What if they leave me? What if they hurt me again? But Jesus' people forgive. Jesus' people are constantly going back to this cycle of asking for forgiveness and forgiving others. It's a core idea of what it means to be a Jesus follower. Jesus has forgiven you and we get to forgive others. And so some of us in the room, you got to send a call. You got to call someone tonight. And you got to straight up just ask for forgiveness. Others of us, it's time to start forgiving. It's time to start to make the declaration of faith that is forgiveness. Because chances are you might never get the call you feel you deserve. You might never hear the words that you honestly think will help you. And regardless of the situation, forgiveness is what Jesus has commanded us to do. Because forgiveness, it has this backwards way of of corrupting, lack of forgiveness has this backward way of corrupting our heart. Because where we're hurt and wounded, there's scar tissue that builds up. It's called bitterness and anger and frustration. And unless we start to forgive and open that up and and clean it out and and ask for the Lord to come and to, to heal us, that same bitterness, frustration, and anger is walling you off to anyone else who wants to step into your life. We started and we talked about how friendships take work. This is part of that work. There's conflict and there's messiness and there's hardship. But we need to be Jesus people who forgive. And so as I finish tonight, I want us to just go back to the beginning. And I need you to take that next step. That whatever it is for you, I think you need to take that next step. For some of us, it is the forgiveness part. For some of us, it's that emotional part. Someone's thinking, well, I'm not emotional. It's like, I've seen you cheer for your sports team. (laughs) You got emotion. You just call it cultural and not biblical. Oop, okay. You need to go and just show up for a friend this week. Take the next step. If if you've sat here tonight and thought, oof, I don't know if I can connect with this because I don't know if I have that friend. 
I think your next step is to put yourself out there. And that's scary and it takes humility and I pray you do it prayerfully. But we are people who are created for community, who need others around us. And if you're sitting in here thinking tonight, I don't have that person who I can lean on, who will carry me, who will point me to the Father. You're going to have to put yourself out there. And you're going to have to invite them into your life. You're going to have to grab coffee. You're going to have to grab a meal. You're going to have to hang out. You're going to have to put yourself out there. Get uncomfortable. Don't get weird, but get uncomfortable. And start to connect with someone. And to be honest about what we need. So whatever your first step is tonight, I pray that you'd have the boldness to take it. With that, let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance to open up your word. To look at these biblical examples of what it means to be a friend. And ultimately, God, we are trying to love our friends well. And as we love our friends well, God, we pray in turn they would love us well back. We pray that we would do it all by the strength of your spirit that leads and guides us. We pray we would do it with Jesus in mind, the ultimate perfect friend, the one who has called us into individual relationship. And God, in all things, including our friendships, would you be glorified. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.